for July 11th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 732. Anakin, get the onion rings. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are uh, sitting around and talking about the things that we uh, that we enjoy. We, we enjoy them more when we enjoy them together, or at least uh, talk about them together after the fact. I'm Matt, and that's Pete. It's a story two-hander. Pete, how are you doing? You know what? I'm doing great, Matt. Unironically, in every possible way. And you know how I know I'm doing great? Why? How? Because I think I'm doing great. Oh, that's good. That's that. That's think. Think and grow happy. I think that that someone oh, yeah. wrote, a, wrote wrote a book. Uh, wrote a book across that. You know, Pete. I was I was just sitting here on my computer, um, and I uh, I was just imagining a podcast. You know, yes. I just like I had a podcast in in my head. Um, and, and you know what I had in my head? I had a list of people who were on the podcast mm-hmm. and it was you and me. And I think you could say that I manifested a manifest. <laughs> oh man. I, why didn't you put anyone else on the list, Matt? <laughs> because it was, it was time. It was, it's time for a storied two-hander. That's the, it's just the vibe the vibe, uh, the vibe that I'm feeling. And, and you are happy in every possible way because you, you willed it. Yes. Believe it or not, that's how it works. Uh, it's, it's really happiness is a choice. And when you choose to be happy, the most important thing to do is if anybody suggests you're not happy, uh, purge them, <laughs> purge them from your life, drive them away with pointed sticks. Uh, and then, and then that'll take care of it. That'll, that'll totally, uh, that'll totally write your, write your little boat. Uh, as it were, um, I guess I should. We should. I think. I think it is worth pointing out that maybe I would be a little happier if Mark were with us tonight, because then we would be talking about Obi Wan Kenobi. Oh, it's true. Yeah, but yes. uh, uh, Mark got sick, unfortunately, and yes. so it, his his number came up. Yeah. <laughs> Yours, <laughs> your your number came up first, then mine, and now Mark's. Yep. I feel like that's worth sharing for people who are following the story behind the story, like the season long arc that we have plotted out of really deep lore of like when each of us get COVID. The champion season long arc of yes. whether, you know. Please, um, so him and his family all the best. I'm sure they'll, you know, nothing serious uh, is happening as of yet, knock on wood. Um, of course, no, nothing will happen because we will manifest it and it will be perfect. Yeah, but they, you know, you and and a, a mutual friend of ours who lives in L.A. got a, you know, household COVID from kids summer camp recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they and you have like backyards, you know, they have space that you can oh, yeah. occupy, outdoor space that you can occupy, um, you know, without really putting anyone else at risk or without, yeah. you know, being antisocial by exposing other people to your plague ridden bodies. But, um, the, but, uh, Mark lives on the upper West side. So, you know, I don't know thoughts and prayers, yeah. uh, or, you know, I don't know, vote. That's the liberal version of thoughts and prayers. Um, the, uh, but yeah, so we were going to talk about Obi, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Mark was really excited about yes. this. He's been like, he's been talking about it. So I feel really bad. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad for him on that score and, you know, and other scores, uh, as other scores as well for his health and the, the health of his family. But the, the, the main upshot, the main bad thing that's happening is that, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna push off talking about the end of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, so we'll, we'll never know. How Obi Wan Kenobi got to be Obi Wan Kenobi, you know, that's the that's the the prequel. I feel like that's the that's the the prequel. You know, like how X got to be X is the the yep. meta plot of all of all prequels, and it's it's um, I guess if we're if we're talking about sort of sort of willing it to be right, mm. like if you if you start with a foregone conclusion, if right. you start with the outcome in mind, mm-hmm. all the all you have left to play with, like in terms of generating interest in a narrative, uh, is the path, the path there. Right. And it's a real, you know, it's a real, I don't know. It, it feels like it can take stakes out of, uh, something because you know, like, you know, uh, well, spoiler alert, Obi-Wan Kenobi gets killed. He gets actually <laughs> killed. He's murdered. Yes. Huge continuity Alec, problems. Alec Huge. Well, it's not. He's he's taken over by an imposter. You that's know, right? And that's, that was wild. <laughs> right, exactly. When Robot Obi Wan Kenobi comes in, and you know, no, right? Because you know that that's not going to happen, and so you can say that it that it takes a lot of the it takes a lot of the fun out. But um, I don't know. It's a uh, uh, it's I guess that the the, the the journey is the the journey is the destination. Yeah. Oh God, I'm just gonna generate, man. I'm generating T-shirt <laughs> slogans tonight. We're gonna put these in the store, man. The journey, the journey is the destination. Yeah. And I I don't think we're prepared to talk about this just yet, but this does seem to be something of of a trend because I started watching Brave New World, the Strange New Worlds. I'm never gonna remember the name of this show. It's everything, everywhere, all the time, and Strange New Worlds are the two new things I've been watching. No, Star Trek Brave New Worlds. Right? Strange New Worlds. Strange New Worlds. Okay. New Worlds. Worlds, New Worlds. At any rate, there's another show where... New, new World Order. Yes, yes, yes. There we go. NWO. Uh, Hollywood Hogan and, uh, and, and uh, Diamond Dallas Page. Was he in that one? <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Nash was. Uh, and, you know, Razor Ramon. Uh, peace be upon him. Uh, but at any, any rate, um, that's another show where it starts out with a proposition of a plot element from another thing that it is a prequel to. Uh, and the way they handle it is pretty interesting, but at least as far as I am into the show, which is not very far at all, which is having the character have kind of premonitions of the show he'll be in in the future, <laughs> right? And, and so that's interesting. But but it seems like as we make this orbit, this orbit in a dimension of time around the various things we are attempting to reboot because the energy of rebooting got to be such that we established some sort of, you know, angular momentum, elliptical orbit around the media of the 70s and 80s. Mm. Uh, in this case, I guess the trail end, tail end of the 60s. So really, we're really we're talking about next generation at this point. But when it, regardless, this isn't a Star Trek podcast. This is a manifesting podcast. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this idea of, you know, the way the future is going to come into being is because you believe and 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 think and and visualize and use various sorts of mental techniques to uh, create it, right? To to I mean, I guess not the mental technique of of actually like doing things in the world that have an effect that cause the thing that you want to have happen, <laughs> which never works. What uh, you, you want to make a plan like a cuck? <laughs> you want to. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you want to start a you want to like uh ask trotsky how well that works <laughs> trotsky had a plan <laughs> yeah no it's not uh right i and i feel like at the at, at, b- before we like drop too far into this because i i feel like we could get really deep we could get like oh, yeah. really really deep into this and i think we should just say i feel kind of morally obliged to, to say at the outset that this is not something that we believe is true you know except in other in in certain like limited uh in certain limited circumstances you know and and those have more to do with kind of like boundary setting than they have to do with like the universe bending bending to your will because very quickly this kind of thinking the like the manifesting kind of thinking the the thinking grow rich uh style of looking at the world can become a cudgel to beat people with like if they're not rich they're not thinking hard enough you know they're yeah. they're not and and uh and that's not, you know, I, I think like in a lot of, in a lot of spheres, in the spiritual sphere, in the economic sphere, in, uh, Michael Crichton's sphere, you know, this, <laughs> this kind of, uh, uh, this kind of thinking is, it can, it can really be like, uh, demeaning to people. And we don't, we don't want to, want to do that. So, so we invite you to just sort of step in, step into the imaginary world, step into this, the, this, uh, strange new world or a brave new world Ooh. or a, a new world order or a new order or, uh, the same order that you always get every time you go to the diner. Step with us into it, into yes. the, the over easy yokes order of 66. <laughs> Execute order. Order 86 fries, 86 onion rings. Not the younglings. <laughs> the I said onion rings, not younglings. Oh, got it. I said Sorry. 86 onion rings, not 86 Anakin, where are you going? <laughs> no. no. Uh, God, I can never eat an onion ring again without thinking of the terrible, the <laughs> terrible misunderstanding. Yep. <laughs> and how a whole lot of suffering could have been prevented yes. if I had only realized that my manager was telling me yeah. my 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 Sith shift captain yes. was was telling me eighty six so, onion rings. For, for those of you who haven't seen the Star Wars prequels, the way it works is it takes place at a pizza shop on the seashore on the Jersey Shore <laughs> in the nineteen in the early nineteen eighties. And Anakin Skywalker is kind of like a young teen who's trying to find love but is stuck with this dead-end job at the pizza place. And there's like a big client who's going to come and have a big dinner at the pizza place and is potentially going to like buy the local youth center and convert it into luxury condominiums, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then then, uh, Alfonso Palpatino, who runs the pizza (laughs) place – Right. Like like there's a bunch of capers and like mistaken identity. And well, then, I mean, like, yeah, it's a pizza place. Of course they have capers. They have they have capers. <laughs> they have onions. They have olives. They have anchovies. And that's really what it's about is it's really about how the quality of the pizza that you get isn't really commensurate with like how nice the building is. But really, it's about whether you've embraced the dark side as an individual or as a collective. Right. Your anger, your fear. Anger leads to fear. Fear leads to to suffering. Suffering leads to uh, uh, pimento cheese. I'm not sure. No, at least <laughs> no. It's usually pineapple. it's usually the the piment the pimento cheese that leads to suffering. The next uh, day when you you know when you- <laughs> I, I do now want to watch the Star Wars prequels recast as an 80s beach romp. I think that would be a pretty fun story to tell. But that's not what Obi Wan Kenobi is, and we will not spoil. We already talked about the first half of Obi Wan Kenobi anyway. Um, so. Uh, we are not going to spoil the end of it until Mark is here to join it with us. Um, but I will but also Pete, was, say, is yeah. this? Oh, sorry, is this the is this the podcast that you manifested when you sat down to, <laughs> to, when we took this as our topic? Yeah, 
I mean, this is you. Here's the thing. I think I think I would not go as far as you went and say that we. I don't quote unquote don't believe this is true. Uh, I tend to think about it. And again, we're this is going. Everybody who's been listening to the podcast at this point has heard me probably go through this a bunch of different changes in what particular frame of thinking I, I think of as particularly uh, pr- primary in terms of analytics of various sorts of situations. And a few years ago, I, I came across, you know, Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky and thinking fast and slow and, and bias, right? And think about how important and and how much our ways of thinking are affected by the patterns of bias that we use to save energy and time in our minds. Um, and I think that manifesting to me feels like it might be the trick of it might be that it's a cognitive phenomenon rather than a material phenomenon, right? It's like you aren't necessarily going to bring about the outcome that you want to have happen in the real world. But if you continue to focus on thinking that a particular thing is true, then when you come across something, you will be biased to assume that it is confirming the belief you have convinced yourself of, right? Like, like, and I'm not saying like, oh, it will, it'll, it'll, you know, the, the, the whole thing with learned helplessness is, is a whole other side of it where it's like, well, if you actually think that you're useless and you have no power, you actually are going to have an inferior outcome, even if the thing that you're dealing with isn't really under your control because of the way that, you know, the, the minds, the brains of animals work and the way that we change our behavior when we think that we can't affect events. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you want to have happen is going to happen, but believing that you're in control, even if it's a lie, uh, can have a certain effect on how you treat situations on like a micro level that can accrue to a different outcome than one that might have happened otherwise, not necessarily the one you would expect it. But I wonder whether with with the idea of manifesting, it's just convincing yourself to be biased to see the things that are happening as reaffirming your hypothesis about yourself. Uh, and I guess the question then is like, well, does it matter if that you're lying to yourself? Um, in a lot of ways, probably, <laughs> I would say, right? Like, I mean, that, oh, lying, that, lying, lying that's, so, that's so hard. That's so harsh. Like you, I suppose you are. I suppose, like according to the letter of the law, uh, you are lying. You are lying to yourself. But it seems ungenerous to me. Yeah, like you should probably, and, and, probably and lazy, your, lazy, right? It's uh, like, yeah, that that also lazy. seems ungenerous. <laughs> but you know, so, okay. Like, give me another. Give me another run back. I'll get another attempt at it. Uh, that there is a danger. One of the trickiest parts about being human and thinking about the things that we go through is that thinking always about the truth, it becomes, you know, cognitively intolerable, right? Like a lot of our thinking is shortcuts. A lot of our art is about trying to wrap our heads around things that are difficult or impossible to comprehend, right? Or different sorts of ideas that clash with each other, systems of and ways of thinking and different modes and heuristics that, you know, seem to lean toward a unified way of putting it all together. But when you sit down and put the pieces together, some of them have triangles, some of them have circles, nothing really fits, Right. And so the assumption that you do have it all figured out can blind you to useful and meaningful information that is there for you to see if you want to see it. This is the serial Pharrell hypothesis, right, Mm. of the cats, right, which is like uh, um, which is which is related to. uh, Can I go on a very, very brief George R. R. Martin tangent? I'd, I'd be mad if you didn't. Okay, so so. Game of Thrones. At this point, nobody cares about Game of Thrones spoilers or anything, and I'm not even going to talk about the end of the show. Um, but 
in the beginning of Game of Thrones, right, in the books and the TV show, there's the speech that the sword master gives to the little girl where he tells her – I don't even remember. I think he does this in the show. Maybe he doesn't. But he tells her that how he got the job of being the bodyguard to the the first sword of Bravos to the Sea Lord of Bravos was that the Sea Lord would invite people in to see this cat that he would keep on his lap and, and sort of ask them – he'd ask people what it was and they would all assume that it was some sort of exotic beast, that some sort of strange animal from another land, that it must be the best cat ever, the most beautiful cat ever and he was the one who identified that it was just a common house cat and because he sought for what it was rather than what everybody wanted it to be he was the one who was trusted to be the bodyguard of the sea lord and there's a variety of different theories but fans as there always are about what this means does it mean that he had a certain immunity to being mind controlled or like glamours and magics he was able to see through them um but more is it just like okay what you see is what you get is an important way of looking at the world if you have a practical outcome that you're trying to achieve, such as trying to stop a mysterious assassin from killing the Sea Lord of Bravos. Now, the the way that this is said is that it is only a cat, right? Uh, and then if you jump ahead to you know three books in and you've got Littlefinger and, and he's got all his machinations, right? And there's a particular moment about halfway through the story as it's been written so far and about a quarter – fifth of the story as it as it ought to be finished when it's done um this little finger reveals that his main motivation the entire time has which is not a surprise to anyone has been uh the love of a woman named cat right uh and like who is the sister of the woman he ends up marrying uh and he's loved her the whole time and everything that he's done has been for this woman that he loved even though this woman is now gone right not in the story anymore uh, all of the double dealing, the smoke and mirrors, the changed identities, the machinations, the betrayals, it was all for her. And, and one big contentious thing he says, or portentous thing he says is like only cat, right? That was the only thing I did it for, which for me recalls the cat that Sierra Farrell talked about, right? I saw things for how they were rather than how they wanted them to be. I wanted this guy to be, you know, Alfonso Palpatino making magical pizzas in Wizardland with Anakin Skywalker and whatnot. But really, he was just this dude who had uh, ego problems because he was sexually rejected. And he was trying to, you know, get his self-esteem back up by impressing the girl that he'd always loved who'd become this 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 thing for him rather than the real person that she was. And then there's another George R. R. Martin story called With Morning Comes Mistfall, which is about a world where everyone lives just at the top of the mountaintops. Uh, and there are myths of these wraiths that will eat you if you go down into the smoke, the fog that blankets the mountains. Uh, it's toxic or it's got wraiths in it. And they'll get you. Um, and uh, and I mean, I'm not recounting it 100 percent right because I read this a long time ago. But the the twist is that if the every I think at one point the, the fog actually recedes or somebody goes down into it and there's just nothing there. Like there's just no world. Um, the mountaintops are all that exist. And the fog doesn't obscure a myth. It obscures a very disappointing reality. And so there's this dual idea in George R. R. Martin's work where, on one hand, you're encouraged to see things for how they are rather than how you want them to be because you can achieve the outcomes that you want uh, more effectively if you have the right information. Right. And also, you know, it gives you the opportunity to have the upper hand on other people. It makes it harder for you to be tricked, it makes it easier for you to trick others if you kind of have an observation for how things are. And there's a lot of trickery out there and a lot of things that are confusing. But on the other hand, a lot of the sort of beauty and mystery and joy of life, uh, he he frames as like he has a bunch of stories about this as, as lies, as misdirections. This comes from growing up in New Jersey, uh, I'm sure. Is, mm -hmm. is, 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 I wouldn't necessarily frame it this way. But the idea that like 
the artifice of of storytelling creates this cloak of mystery and beauty around things that if you take the cat view isn't really there right um and and i i wouldn't i wouldn't frame it just that way in terms of of what human experience is like because i think our our minds themselves have a lot of the assumption that we can see things for the way they are is a very generous assumption about how human minds even work right um and human bra- minds as a phenomenon of human brains and whatnot right um but uh but what I'm saying about manifesting, right, is like if you enter into whatever it is you're doing with the assumption that it's going to turn out all right, you are going to be missing information because stuff that doesn't fit your hypothesis about yourself, you might not even realize that you just refuse to see it, right? Like you might you might ignore it. You might uh, explain it away subconsciously. It might not even rise to the surface of your attention if you are focused on the idea that everything's going to be great for you in the specific way that you have envisioned. Um, but at the same time, if you go into this this endeavor with no myth making, with no idea of where it's going and no romance about why you're doing it, uh, then its sort of whole purpose and its whole humanity, right? Uh, might not be present. And this idea that you even could stare at things just for the way they are uh, seems something like seems like a fiction in itself, because, of course, you and I are I mean, I'm more of a literary person than I'm a math person. And I don't particularly believe the idea that all of the problems that are just semantics are, you know, dismissible as semantics, because semantics is nothing less than the meaning of words, which is everything that we talk about. So. So, I mean, I guess that's where I come down on, on manifesting from here. And I'm sure through this dialogue with you, I will arrive at a new opinion of it. But it's this idea of like I could see people anchoring themselves in it. I could see people diluting themselves through it so that they miss important information. I can see them reacting hostily to people who they maybe wouldn't want to be hostile to who might threaten this worldview of theirs, right, this, which is so important to them. But at the same time, I can also see a usefulness and a, and a uh, something that's going to happen anyway. The idea of like going forward with some sort of mythical idea about why you're doing what you're doing um, that that uh, it's just it's just the idea that it all has a unity. Right. And that that it all does make sense. Um, yeah. You know, is is the part of it that is tough to, to is tough to explain rigorously. Right. OK. A um, lot of a lot of different directions I want to go yeah, from here. Yeah. Like what one is to say, I actually think that there's something I. I'll bet I would hypothesize anyway, and this could be proved or disproved, I suppose, because being a hypothesis, it ought to be falsifiable. I, I would, uh, I would hypothesize that there's actually probably some connection between the material reality of certain circumstances and like a propensity to want to believe in in the kind of manifesting thing. Like if, uh, if, uh, you know, if, if you're getting what you need, if you're getting your needs met, you know, if you're, you're self-actualizing whatever in other ways, I mean, to say nothing of like food and, and, and drink, like if you're self-actualizing in other ways, um, you probably don't need to find this particular tool. You probably don't need to add it to your toolbox. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, but let's not go in that direction. Let's go in a different direction. And, and I'll say, um, Speaking of speaking of uh, uh, Anakin Skywalkerino, the uh, the you know um, Anakin, get him back here and finish with the pies. Uh, I wanted to work on the power converters. I, that I were, told you, spinning is not a good trick. What are you doing in the parking lot? <laughs> Um, you know, the, the, like, uh, this is the reason the teenagers are insufferable, right? Is that they have no, 
they they just have their their character characterologically unable to just go along with the BS. Uh, when the, you know, and they, they got a Holden Caulfield everything, right? Like, hey, that's BS. That's BS. It's like, yeah, yeah, of course it's BS. But ha- have you thought about what the alternative to the BS is? It's, it's too horrible to contemplate. Uh, <laughs> really, you know, when, when, um, that, when, because like the, the, I don't know if, if you spend time with, with teenagers, which I did when I was like a high school student, they like, they're, they, are... I didn't spend any time with teenagers when I was a high school student, man. I only hung out in the coffee shops of the intelligentsia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sorry, Pete, that's, that's, that's what I did. I, I mean, I was working in professional theater, so I like actually, you know, uh, really hung out in the coffee shops of the intelligentsia, except they, they were actors. They didn't turn out to actually be intelligent, the intelligentsia. <laughs> they turned out to be a lot of community theater actors, but, mm. uh, you know, but I, at the time I couldn't tell the difference. And like, uh, when, that's cause they were acting <laughs> with a capital H, um, no, I mean, like, uh, if you've been, uh, you know, if you've, if you've ever had the experience of like teaching high school or something or like, uh, being a theater camp counselor, you know, both of which, both of which I've done, um, like teenagers are on a hair trigger for like anything that smells even a little bit false, uh, to them because they're so insecure. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm generalizing hugely. They're so insecure about their, their position in life, right? Uh, that they don't, they don't want to be lied to, right? They don't want to be talked mm. down to. They don't want to be fed a line. You know, they, they don't want anything but the, the, uh, the real stuff. Um, and that's, that's really impossible, you know, uh, for which, like, because so much of life, uh, comes down to you know which which set of of comforting uh, falsehoods are you, are you prepared to accept just in order to make it possible to 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 get through the day you know what i mean to 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 live your life and so i was th- i mean i was thinking about this when you were talking about you know seeing things as they are and the benefits and sort of the drawbacks of seeing Oh geez, I manifested not sneezing there, Pete. It was. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you were yawning. No, it was. Uh, I was. I was really. I was really just concentrating, really focused <laughs> on a reality where I didn't sneeze just then, and I, I, I was. I was successful. So, like I've been saying this whole time, it works. Yes, guys. it it works. Um, in sort of seeing things as they are, and so anything that like kind of anything that smacks of you know to to the to the sort of uh, Caulfield esque right. Um, teenage sensibility anything that smacks of being kind of a comforting lie uh is um you know it's like oh that's that's bs and you're you're sort of blinding yourself to seeing to seeing things as they are i think uh, the irony there is that you end up missing out if you are if you are like really really committed to that to the the uh, Caulfield-esque worldview, uh, you end up missing out on a lot of the subtleties of what, what you just unfolded, Pete, in terms of like, uh, uh, in terms of what, what the use of a set of kind of tuning your cog, tuning your confirmation bias, you know, mm-hmm. in a particular way so that it is, 
so that it is useful to you. You know, I, the, the, whatever the, the drawbacks are, um, of that, you know, uh, maybe like, in, in, I suppose you, you encounter some, some situations where it really doesn't serve you, but, uh, in a large number of situations, it really can, uh, it really can serve you, you know, and, and, um, and, and it, it does the kind of the, the manifesting, uh, kind of habit, you know, the, the manifesting gene, um, the secret gene, uh, actually has something to do with how the, the front parts of the brain work, right? Like the prefrontal cortex being not a logic machine, but a machine that is super adept at rationalizing, uh, rationalizing, uh, outcomes in a way that like comports with, uh, your pre-existing biases that comports with your idea of yourself, you know, that comports with, um, you know, ego integrity that comports with, with, uh, your assumptions about, about particular, particular things. And so it does, I mean, it does seem like, uh, to sort of tell the story of how you manifested something, it, the, the weird thing is that that story is always told ex post facto, you know, uh, it's never like, I, I am manifesting, Pete, I'm manifesting my Oscar win this, uh, you know, this year, this, this season in, in, uh, in films. Like, no, it's the story is never told that way. It's told ex post facto. It's told like, oh, this is how I manifested it. And there's the old prefrontal cortex going clackety clackety clack, lining up disparate facts, uh, lining up disparate facts into a, uh, into a narrative. I, I do think though, there's aside from all of this stuff, I think there's an aspect of this that actually can be useful that, that has more to do with, with boundary setting. Like I said, at like I said at the beginning, um, if you find that like you're in a group of people that, that treats you a certain type of way, mm-hmm. you know, and you decide that that's not okay anymore. Like you, you don't want to be treated that certain type of way. Like, uh, oh, I, you know, I don't know what's a, a real enough, but relatively benign example, you know, yeah, somebody makes fun of your haircut. Every yeah, day. sure. Exactly. Or my family's always making fun of my haircut yeah. or, yeah. or, you know, we use, uh, uh, we use humor in a way that is like, you know, that cements our bonds with each other, but also can be really wounding. Like when, you know, someone says, say, you know, is just, uh, busting your chops and like says something about you like that. Uh, you don't, and that's not okay with you anymore, you know, and, and you decide like, okay, that's not okay anymore. And I'm just going to like set the boundary and I'm going to hold the boundary and I'm going to hold people accountable. That Like when someone says something like that, Hey, that hurts my feelings. I don't like that. I don't like yeah. when you do that. You know, you'll find, you know, that you select situations, you know, you select out of more, you opt out mm-hmm. of situations where you're going to be, where you are being treated, or you're going to be treated in the way that, that, uh, you don't like anymore where there's going to be like hurtful teasing or whatever, you know, that like, uh, you're, you're going to, and, and to a certain extent, you sort of, you manifested that, I suppose, right? Mm. Like to, in, in, to like your life got better, you know, no one's making fun of your haircut anymore. You know, there's an improvement. And yet, like, it didn't happen through a mystical process. It happened through you not being willing to accept. Uh, certain kinds of things, you know, interpersonally. I, I would say that this happens, you know, more 
in interpersonal situations than it happens in like material situations. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't say, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to manifest a PR job that has, you know, that, that is, uh, has 20% equity in the company or something like that. <laughs> like that, that's not something that you're going to manifest, but you can, you can manifest a, a, a non-abusive working environment. You know, mm-hmm. if you are, if you are a person in a situation where you can change jobs, like you can change a job. If you're able to change jobs, you can change to a, one where people treat you better, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you, you can change friends to, to friends that, that treat you better. You know, you can stop dating people who you, you constantly feel like, uh, aren't treating you well and you can start dating ones that like you. Like it's, uh, these, these things are possible to do. And like, you know, did you manifest, did I manifest my partner? You know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm getting married this year. Like, and did, did I finally, after four decades on earth, did I finally manifest, uh, the, you know, did I finally manifest the, the perfect partner for me? I think I just started recognizing the qualities that that person would actually have, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, started like w- working to be around people with those qualities. Uh, one in particular, obviously, and 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 like less uh, less stuff that you know s- seemed right or interesting or good at the time, but but turned out uh, turned out not to be good. So so you know, aside from the the secret, aside from like law of attraction. Uh, well, th- this is sort of the law of attraction to a certain extent, right? Like, um, but it's, it happens, uh, it happens with, uh, with, uh, relationships and it happens with kind of interpersonal interactions, not with, you know, buckets of ducats, uh, and, um, uh, thinking and thinking and, and growing rich. Um, yeah. you, you feeling, you feeling what I'm laying down, Pete? Yeah. I want to, I want to jump back and come back to where you're at from one of the things that you said that struck me. And I like how we started from one extreme position and we're kind of working our way to other positions here, sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi does in the TV show Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is a reality show about a wedding photographer who needs to go to all of these different weddings, right? And he goes, well, hello there. And he takes a lot of charming pictures. And wait, no, that's not the show. Never mind. Never mind. We're just going to keep speculating as to what Obi-Wan Kenobi is actually about until we have the chance to talk about it. Uh, we're going to manifest these things. We're going to make them real. No. Uh, Talking about the teenagers and the assumption that they're being lied to, which is really interesting and definitely makes it worth revising some of what I had said previously to bring it up to speed with the conversation, because you're not always being lied to. That, that's the trick. Like the, the, the George R. R. Martin proposition is that everything that you think is good is a lie, right? And everything that is bad is true. Um, now that's not strictly the kid. That's not strictly what it is because the rates are monsters, but the, this notion that, you know, if you disperse all the lies, there's just this incomprehensible yawning nothingness, uh, is I think speaking less to a material reality independent from the self than we would like to think that it does. Right. Uh, because sure. yeah. And, and one way that this, and, and what I'm thinking now, I'm specifically thinking about wrath of the Titans, which I watched after renting it from a red box. And I think that was just about where I was like, you know, grittiness has gone far enough. Uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> he's gritty. Like I remember clash of the Titans and the owl that flies around. That's kind of R2D2 and like this. And this was like a, a sequel to a remake, a reboot of that movie. And it was like Mogadishu with like the, the Kraken blowing up, towns or whatever i wasn't the crackhead but it, and it was just like man you know like this is so bleak and everybody is so miserable in this world and 
And we've long since had objections to this notion that entertainments and cultural expressions that are that are negative or cruel or sadistic or reflect nihilism and moral bankruptcy have a greater truth value than those that don't just by necessity not necessarily by probability but like by necessity and we that's not the case you know the, the world is not you know independently of our experiences of it this you know incredibly horrible uh place in all respects all the time there obviously are things about it that are very, very, very bad. Um, but, you know, if you go in in much the same way that you could think that you go into a new job manifesting exactly how it's going to be and it's going to be perfect. Right. And, and you're not necessarily creating the situation in that sense. You're not having that effect on the material world, but you're definitely predisposing yourself to seeing it in a certain way. It's going to affect the information that comes in going to things with the assumption that, like, everybody hates me. You know, nobody's on my side. Everybody's lying to me all the time. You can fall for a lot of nonsense doing that, too. You can you can buy a lot of bills of goods or people who will tell you, oh, no, no, I'm the one who tells you the truth. Right. Like uh, this is like Stacey Keach. This is like American History X stuff. Right. Like uh, not Stacey Keach, the man, uh, the actor who performed the part in American History X of like the actual villain who is the adult who tells all the kids to be Nazis. Right. Uh, because it will fix their problems, which are real problems, but for which this is not a solution. Right. Um, and, but, yeah, this idea that if you are utterly disenchanted and totally have uh, because of your position, you know, materially in the world, socially in the world, whatever it is, convinced that everybody around you is lying to you. That doesn't mean that everybody who tells you that everybody is lying to you is telling the truth, right? Like, uh, and it doesn't mean that everything that you encounter is a lie. Um, and, and sort of working your way up from there, uh, it does it does profit you in your relationships to make positive assumptions about how your life might turn out you it just it just involves a healthy amount of skepticism for control of the actual outcome right because you i mean you're totally right you're not going to be with a person who has the characteristics that you want in a partner if you don't believe that that's something that you could have um and so so that but the difference between that that has a lot of levels to it too like if you yeah. don't if you don't believe that you deserve it if you don't believe that yeah. it's possible if you don't believe that you know that person exists you know like all yeah. uh, if if you don't believe that they live in your major metro area like it's uh, you don't all, have the emotional skills to be able to relate to somebody in a way that you would want to relate to that person Right. Like you have an attachment disorder, right? like any sort there's stuff. a lot of right. Yeah, so there's I'm saying you, but I, there, you know, there's, well. there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that you can that that you can say to yourself that would that would interfere uh, that would interfere with uh, your capacity to like go out, find this person and, and you know, begin uh, a relationship with them. Yeah. But the notion that the universe will serve this person up to you as a direct consequence of you thinking about it is not the operation that's taking place. And uh, it's more like you were always running across a lot of people and you, you, there's always a lot of chance and there's always a lot of, of randomness that, you know, there's a lot of candy in the bucket and there's also some razor blades in the bucket. Um, and you keep sticking your hand in the bucket one way or the other. 
and I guess if you look for razor blades, I guess you might find them. <laughs> but uh, that's a bad metaphor. Yeah. Again, stay tuned for my hit self-help book, uh, you know, Candy Apples That Kill Your Children, How uh, Five Simple Hacks to Get Through Life or something. <laughs> like, the Halloween the Halloween happiness uh, hatchet. How to yeah. – <laughs> Tricking how to- and treating yourself to your way to happiness. <laughs> it's like, the, yeah, the first one is like why I throw away all my Charleston shoes I- is the first <laughs> <laughs> Anakino, why yeah. you put the razor blades in the bucket? Uh, you thought of me. You thought of me to slice it up real nice. It's like no, Palpatino. You telling me to chop them all down? I, I, I meant to slice up the pizza. I didn't mean to slice up the younglings. Not <laughs> the younglings. You say if I uh, strike it down, they become more powerful than you possibly imagine. <laughs> Mamma mia. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm Rona <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi. I, it was really that 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 scene where he decides that he's finally going to give up his Jewish birth name to go by Kenobi, so that he could be accepted by the uh, by the Jedi Council was really really touching and kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, uh, yeah when he uh, when he did it on uh, on on that island on Ellis Four, the xenophobe planet. The uh, the Ellis Island. Yes, yes, know? yes. On the on the island of Ellis, <laughs> he had to yeah. change. He had to change yeah. his name. It was, you know, it was really bittersweet. He was starting a new chapter of his life. You know, you you got the sense there were, uh, you got the sense there were was a lot in store for him, and yet, you know, he was leaving so much behind in terms of his his traditions and his <laughs> you know, native tongue. Why, hello there, he says to his new life. Uh, <laughs> hello there. Uh, <laughs> so okay. So so this is this is where I mean, again, I don't want to go too deep in this direction for fear of, of alienating people, but it, it bears it bears some discussion like I, all right, I'll give I'll put it I'll make it give it a real world example. Right. So uh, when I, w- I was at the beach this weekend with with uh, my family. Right. And it was past nap time for my little son, who's two. And uh, he starts melting down when it gets past his nap time, right? He he just does not have the uh, he did not roll the high the constitution score that lets him stay up past his nap time and still like maintain full hit points and whatnot and an advantage on his saving throws. So he he starts having a rough time, and uh, you know that means he's like very touchy. He's like his behavior starts to go. He starts crying, and so in order to meet my family, they had gone. My extended family had gone to a beach that had a very small parking lot, and we had parked at a different beach and walked over. So we had walked like a half mile up the beach uh, to get from one beach to another to meet my family. And that meant that somebody had to go get the car. And so my wife decided she was going to go get the car. And so she had to walk like a half mile up the beach, which is, you know, not fast walking in sand, yep. to get the car and drive it around to pick us up. And my son just kept asking, you know, where's mommy? Where's mommy? Where's mommy? Right. And it's like, you know, have faith, you know. And again, he's two. He doesn't understand any of the words I say uh, other than dump truck, fire truck. You know, uh, he, he actually he understands a lot more than, than I let on. And I always try to, uh, you know, children will let. I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to it. (laughs) But the point being that, like, I did say to my son, have faith that your mom is going to come back Uh. and get you. Right. And and so when I say the word faith here, I think the way I've always thought about it is as like a a virtue in terms of almost like a survival mechanism, like that. It's that it's a strength that you can have to be capable of believing something that seems not the case and not necessarily in a delusionary way but in a way that leaves you 
you know, that, that, that maintains your focus on something that you feel is worth, was worth it. Right. A, a, a capacity, right. Um, a virtue, right. The idea that like, uh, things are really bad, but you have a reasonable, you know, you have like a reasonable belief that like things are not going to be so bad or that, you know, your disposition towards it shouldn't be entirely negative. Having a capacity for faith in things getting better, um, is, is I think something that gets, I feel like it gets way too bound up in faith in this or faith in that, as in like the experience of feeling the comfort of a belief is contingent upon a like evaluation of the belief as like a discursive statement or true or false, which is not the way I've ever experienced it. It's much more like a, a state of being related to an unknown situation. And, and it doesn't make the situation known, but it's just a, a way of – it's sort of a skill and a strength to maintain a, uh, a disposition in the situation towards this scary unknown thing where you know you you try to think that it's not going to be so scary yeah or right? where you where um, you you at least maintain an openness to it you can like yes. relate to it you can relate to it as an unknown thing and you can relate to your fears about it as as feelings that you're having or as cognitions yeah. or as as emotions that, that that you're having rather than like sure determinations about an outcome because right. you don't you don't know the outcome and like to the extent that you can hold on to the fact that you don't know the outcome you know which could be bad, but yeah. also could be good. Yeah. You know, like, uh, and, and there isn't like, unless there's, I don't know, unless, unless you're, you're, uh, what I don't know, like uh, hanging over the Sarlacc pit. Um, you know, like, uh, <laughs> hey, Boba Fett got his own book. You know? <laughs> well, no, the, the the Sarlacc pit is what uh, is what they call the grease trap. That's outside the. Oh uh, right! I was forgetting about outside. that scene where where Boba Fett had to dump all the grease from the fried scallops into the Sarlacc pit. That's right. And then he fell in and he got third degree burns and had to go to the hospital. Uh, that was so sad. Yeah, oh, and he, oh. he had to, he wore a mask for the rest of his life just to to yep. and and that's how he became the Mandalorian. That's right. That because he was using the mandolin to chop <laughs> yeah, cucumbers exactly. for the salad for the slaw. It was a slaw. It wasn't for salad. It's not a fancy place. No, it's not. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a slaw. It's just it's just yeah. more mayonnaise than than cabbage, really. At that, yeah, you know, at that at that yeah. spot, they're on the they're on the shore by the beach by the beach with the small parking lot. You know, yeah. would you distinguish between hope and faith in these in in this uh, thing? Because I've I've what you're calling faith now. You know, have faith, right? Or you know, live within with an existential position of faith, like a have faith be your way of being in the world. I, I would have referred to as hope, which I think might s- sidestep some of the, uh, some of the, uh, like some of people's scream- squeamishness about a, a word that is usually religious, right? Where hope yeah, doesn't have yeah, a lot yeah. of that, a lot of that baggage. And, and just like faith in, I don't mean hope for X or hope for Y. I mean, can you live with, uh, with an attitude? Can you live inclining towards, um, it, it, can you live inclining towards, uh, you know, an, an outcome that that will gradually improve or, or at least be all right? Actually, using the using the example we've been using, kind of relationship examples. Like if you if you feel like every time you fight over what restaurant to go to, you know, you'll never be friends again. 
with your friends, right? <laughs> like that's not that, that that's terrible. You'll your your friendship will in fact not survive, right? Because you believe it. Because you believe it won't. But if you live in the hope with like you know, uh, Pete's being really annoying. He's always wanting to go to this one pizza place. Uh, this one pizza place where they serve the the most abominable um, abominable coleslaw. But the slices of the pizza have the sharpest edges I've ever seen. I don't even know <laughs> what tool that that could create yeah. like it's a, a window mace they use them a- <laughs> <laughs> um the uh yeah they always have they always have pizza in the window uh that yes. you can walk by and yep see. you always got to see the pies in the window um, but that like, you know, like, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to get through, we're going to get through this. Like, and, and, uh, you know, the fact that, that, uh, I want to go to the sandwich shop down the street, um, that, uh, that that's, uh, you know, that that's, it's going to be okay. Right. Like, uh, that, or it, it can, like it's this really, this is solvable, right? Like is, is a better is a better attitude to go at life with. I, you know, I made a bargain with my life, uh, with myself, Pete, uh, vis-a-vis my life when I was a teenager and I, and I got like caught like a lot of brainy teenagers might on the, like the, uh, free will versus determinism, right. uh, thing. And I thought uh, the, the bargain I made with myself is like, well, it, if I have free will, then I should act like I should believe I have free will and I should act like I have free will because it will, you know, lead me to make better choices. Um, and, and sort of use my life better. If I don't have free will, like footnote, I actually don't have a choice about what to believe. Uh, but if I don't have free will, I choose to believe that I do have free will because my, I, my experience of my life will be better, you know, <laughs> like, uh, thinking that, thinking that I do, uh, rather than thinking that I don't, it will lead to, you know, less net suffering for me over the course of my, uh, uh, over my, uh, over my whole life. So I, I feel like, a. a you know, a similar thing is true of, of, you know, what we might call faith or hope, where it's just like, you know, believing that it's possible that, 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 uh, things are, it's not even that they're not all that bad. Maybe they are all that bad, but mm-hmm. that there's a way through them, you know, mm-hmm. is the, uh, I, I think is the, the crucial thing that, that you need. So, uh, did, uh, did your wife end up, uh, bringing the car back? She did. Yeah. Ah. She did. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if she hadn't, you know, then I would have been wrong. Right. Um, but she did, thankfully. So we were able to get the kiddo in the car and he took a big, long nap. That That is for sure. Um, yeah, I think that um, it's, it's interesting. I think when I think about those two words, I think of a difference in the degree of activity. It's like it's almost like they have different sensations when I roll the words around in my mind. Right. Faith and hope. Um, and, and the way that my, my, my gut feeling for it, it would be that, that faith is something that would accompany you when you're doing something. And then hope would be something when you're hoping that somebody, somebody else does something for you. Um, which is interesting because in the context of mom bringing in the car, because it's like, what I'm really saying to the kid is like, don't scream and cry for your mom and panic, right? Like exercise some energy to maintain, you know, your composure, not like, because, because I could say like, have hope. 
that she'll be here. It's it feel, it's interesting, right? It feels it feels different. It feel first of all, it feels like a much lower probability event. Be like, don't worry, son. Have hope. Your mom will return, right? <laughs> like, like, sure. Like, uh, and I guess this really brings us to a new hope, which is the season two of the Obi Wan Kenobi show, which I think takes place at a ski lodge. I'm not sure, but uh, I know there's a bunch of bullseyeing of womp rats and my T16. If you know what I mean, yeah. They, well, they, um, they're all driving those those snowmobiles, like, the, <laughs> the, and and it's the rich kids that have the t-16s you know what i yes, mean the, yes, the, yes, yes. you know the the uh, other kids don't have the nice uh, don't have yeah. the nice snowmobiles and the ATATs and the atsts right right yeah absolutely those, all the at the snowmobile race yeah totally. when they're working when they're working on the on the chairlifts you know yeah, to yeah, yeah. uh uh, they they got to really get those mobile uh, repair platforms yeah. uh, really up high as they, they and, you know, the thing. The, here's the thing that really pisses me off about manifesting. I feel like we've talked about enough that I, I feel like I have a new place to stand here, right? Like we've talked a lot about, okay, first of all, I really resent history as I, as I think a lot of people do. Um, one of the things that I resent about history is the reduction or I guess what, the elision of the process of separation between uh social and cultural identity and religious identity as if it never happened right so as, as in um that we we go from this place in you know particularly in, in i guess i would call it western culture but it's not exclusively western there's a lot of places all over the world where this happens where there are certain practices and institutions that are present in everyday life and nowadays they are part of this like very separate sphere that you might or might not uh, involve in your life because of what you might think is true or false about certain propositions. Um, back in the day, I find it not difficult to believe that everybody hewed to all of the propositions in their minds at, while at the same time engaging a lot of the practices, right? And I think the the literature bears out at least somewhat that a lot of the things that we see as contingent on uh, logical ways of thinking about things were merely, or not merely, but were traditions that were carried out like as, as a way of living. Right. Um, and among these are like art and song, right. Music and, uh, and, and kind of socializing and celebration and various forms of ritual, which were, um, which I don't think only have value if, you know, as a condition of like X, Y, and Z proposition necessarily being strictly the case, confirmably so. Right. Um, and that, that this mysterious attitude that we've uh, talked about, and I say mysterious in the sense of it has to entertain the possibility that the outcome that you want is not the outcome that's going to happen, right, is is part of the necessary engagement with that those traditions and with the notion of, like, believing that things might be better while at the same time not insisting that they will be out of a, out of a false confidence, right? Um, and I resent how manifesting erases all of that. And super simplifies it to the point of parody in my mind, right? There's the idea that, well, no, you know, it is an if-then statement. If you believe it will happen, then it will happen. Not like, well, you know, the human mind is a bunch of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff that that operates on, on uh, hopes and dreams, right? And that kind of needs them in order to understand things. We can also frame them as, you know, anchoring points, you know, uh, heuristical waypoints, we can we can describe them in a bunch of greater or lesser medical or scientific ways. If we want to feel more or less legitimate about them, them being general uh, predispositions and beliefs about what ought to happen and what you had, you want to have happen and what you hope happens, right? Hope being sort of part of that complex. Um, 
that, that it all has this complex relationship with the idea that you don't know what's going to happen. And and I think that it's also predicated on the idea that dismissing all of it and just holding Caulfielding all of it is also ritual and song and culture and like you know the music. We make right? we make the kids read Catcher in the Rock more every year. <laughs> we make them. <laughs> well, I think we're trying to. Uh, are we trying to engage with them and meet them where they live, or are we trying to show them a mirror of themselves and what they're like so that they can understand it? Um, I know a lot of people like, you know, oh, screw Gold Gawfield. He's such a jerk. Uh, like when they read Catcher in the Rye, when it's like, we're actually kind of talking about you when we make you read this book. Yeah. <laughs> like you act this way. Um, no, that's you. You do that. That's you do what that. you no, yeah, I don't. That's, that's what you do. Yeah. Go to my room. You're all a bunch of phonies. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to run away. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it, I, I really resent the reduction of these sort of, long-standing even to the extent that they don't have to stand but when they fade they get replaced right or get reformed you know art new art replacing old art new ritual you know supplanting old ritual uh you know people still trying to find ways to relate to each other and kind of make the moments that they have together feel special in the way that we kind of crave needs to happen uh and that informs the way that we think and feel about our lives right like all this stuff is it just it requires a wisdom about you know like living without a net you know the only net is like the hands of the people around you and whether they're going to grab you or not as you fall right like and maybe they won't and maybe they can't you know and everybody's strength gives out eventually but like just reducing it all to like if you want a bmw put a picture of a bmw above your bed you know and like look at it every night and it's like dude if i'm going to do that it's going to be strictly for hedonism you know, like it's I am I am just like, man, look at those lines that are always the same every year. Um, no, never mind. I shouldn't. And, I, and Aquino, what you doing to living without a net? Huh? I tell you to wear your hair net when you're working in the kitchen. It's a sanitary necessity, uh, Anakino, huh? Well, you got to do that. That's uh, we're going to get inspected. They're going to come through. <laughs> Put my luscious locks up Palpatino. I got this great seventies haircut. It's I got a wave. You go, uh, you go, you take those luscious locks down to Naboo. Naboo. I'm sorry. I mean to your neighbor, to the neighbor girl. Oh, I let's see a Padme. I had a bowl cut. I try to have something nice. <laughs> I'm just saying. When you're in the kitchen, you gotta wear. You gotta live with a net. Uh, you gotta live you with a net. That's right. Who are me? No, not you. I'm nets. We're talking about Padme. Uh, man. So, yes, it's <laughs> the Obi-Wan's the Obi-Wan saga continues. Uh, man. I mean, does that make any sense? I'm also also I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, you're you're deluding yourself. You're not facing the you know harsh light of reality. And it's like, dude, I've faced the harsh light of reality. And we can go through a lot of the different coping mechanisms that have, that have come into play during these kinds of times. Um, it's, it, this is a, this feels like a full circle sort of conversation where we're not just discussing, uh, these ideas as if we haven't critically, uh, considered them. Um, I mean, I don't know. I've definitely at times been much more the, uh, I mean, I don't know, but I'll ask you this is for, for me, it was Seneca. Is there like a philosopher that hit you at your lowest moment that sort of gave you an idea or thought that gave you comfort to get through like a super dark time and a frame of ideas that maybe you don't ascribe to as much now as you used to, but like for you as a ring of truth. Uh, yes, absolutely. It was uh, Bob Dylan's blood on the tracks. 
Was, oh, uh, interesting. Was, I, I don't, you know, I don't read uh, Stoic. I don't read like Romans. I don't read Stoicism. I, I, don't, read, I don't read Romans. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I'm sorry. I don't read Romans. I don't read Romans. I read, I read First Corinthians 13 over and over and over and over. Don't, uh, don't consider it critically. <laughs> Um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> well, uh, though I speak with the tongues of the men and the angels, the, but the, uh, no, uh, I, I don't go, um, I, I don't go to philosophy, you know, to, uh, ease my, uh, to ease my suffering. I, I tend to go to, to music, you know, to, mm. to art. And so like, you know, I can think of a period of, of time within the last decade when I was like really sad about some bad stuff that had gone down and, and, uh, you know, uh, for whatever, for whatever reason, um, like, uh, blood on the tracks really just like, uh, reached through and, 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 and spoke to me The you know, when, when I was, um, uh, when I was, uh, teaching English, but in, in high school and teaching college English, right. And like, I, I had the ability to, uh, you know, I imposed my capricious will on uh, a bunch of students. The, the one thing that I did, uh, in all circumstances was make one task of the, you know, terms work, uh, that they would memorize and recite a poem. Um, and I, I think that like, so it, it is so useful, um, to have in situations like, uh, to have in, in situations of, of, you know, of real, of real suffering and in situations where you're kind of at a loss, where you're, where you're feeling very low. It's, it's so, it can be so useful in life to have like language that you can reach for that can, you know, that can at least like kind of give it form and shape. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, it can be so momentarily useful. It can be so like useful ad hoc to a particular, to a particular situation. And, you know, if that's philosophy, I think philosophy has an elegant and beautiful way of kind of describing the disposition of things in, in the universe. I think that poetry can do that sometimes or, you know, certain passages of fiction or, or, uh, you know, certain kinds of song and, and, uh, and, uh, this, th- that these can be, that these can be useful. By the way, you know, what is ri- religious ritual, <laughs> you know, but sort of applying some narrative, some poetry, yeah. some song, some like maybe some sort of like physical practice, like standing and kneeling or I, you know, whatever, whatever it, it is in your culture, your religion, right? Like, uh, to uh, moments, to extreme moments, to moments of, of sort of extremis in, in life, whether they're experiences of like grief and loss, whether they're experiences of like, you know, uh, great hope, like the like birth or christening or naming or whatever of a child or, you know, starting a marriage or like all those things, um, you know, uh, whether it's a wedding or a funeral or whether it's just kind of experiences of the numinous of the kind of the, the like trying to connect, trying to connect in the day to day with some, some, uh, some sort of greater, greater principle and kind of having, having a vocabulary, uh, to do that is, you know, I've, I found 
to be very, very useful. Um, very, very useful, uh, at, at times in my life. Um, it's good to know, it's good to know, like just a little Yates, you know, the right 16 lines of Yates. It's not always good to think too hard about Yates's biography, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's good, it's good to know, to, uh, to know a little bit. So you, so, uh, you, you started reading the Stoics? I actually read, I, I didn't read the primary sources. I read, not the actual, not actual, not the book famously called The Constellations of Philosophy, but there's another book called The Constellations of Philosophy by, um, I said Alain de Baton. Oh, yeah. Uh, the contemporary, the contemporary philosophy writer, sort of, he does like sort of pop philosophy writing, but he also, I think, is a little bit more rigorous sometimes. I'm not sure. But I read that when I was in the hospital. And the Seneca chapter really stuck with me, particularly the, um, the notion of the dog and the cart, right? And the sort of like, well, if the cart's moving along, you can either trot alongside the cart or you can get dragged by it and it's going to depend. Now, but that was, that was, I was coping with very specific things at the time and also very specific sorts of changes uh, in my life. And um, which of course in our, uh, and again, when, we won't do the that's that seems like a members only thing, if at all, to do the full on like, here's what really happened in the darkest moments of my life, everybody, as you tune in to listen to the Obi-Wan Kenobi podcast. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's what the Obi-Wan Kenobi show is really about. Right. Which is about the darkest times in Obi-Wan Kenobi's life uh, when he was trying to graduate from college and, and dealing with a lot of personal problems. Um, but the point being that uh, that um, certain there's certain things that you always assume are true about your life potentially, I think, as you come out of childhood for good or for bad, I think it's very, I think it's very, I just say you people always do it. I'd say that there's a great propensity for the human organism, right, for the human brain to form uh, some form of sort of stable notion of its general situation, right, with regards to the most important people that it regards in its life. And if there are drastic changes in those kind of people or situations, uh, they can, they can be very traumatic. I think that's not as controversial thing to say. Um, and to view the shifting in those kinds of relations and situations as a vicissitude, right, as a change, rather than as a peripatia, like a recognition, is a, a an academic difference, I think. No, right? uh, like, no, or, I think that's really, I think that's really important because yeah. that's that's the difference between. That, that, you know, that's the difference between sort of trauma and narrative. Like, that's the difference mm. between trauma and history. Or, or that's the difference, let's see, to, to put it in slightly more poetical language, uh, that's the difference between having a ghost and having an ancestor. You know, mm. like a ghost you're haunted by, you know, a ghost is always, is always there screaming to the, the wraith, you know, yeah. is always there like screaming in your face about, ah, I'm so scary. Rah, I'm so scary. <laughs> and an ancestor is, is a thing that happened, you know, right? Like, uh, an ancestor is something that, that, uh, you go to, whether it's for, uh, uh, solace or inspiration or, you know, kind of an object lesson and what not to do. And, and a ghost is, is uh and a ghost comes to you a ghost a ghost haunts you so the idea that like if you can accept it as a vicissitude rather than as a recognition right a recognition is like oh no this was always you know yes. this was always bad you know yes. like and it I, was I, always you know, this 
without without going to the uh you know without going into the depths of it i mean honestly like i'm a child of divorce and so uh, that's a terrible it's a terrible phrase my parents got divorced when i was a child and uh and you were a youngling (laughs) when i was a youngling and i I went like wide-eyed you know tears in the bottom of my eyes and it's what you're not you're not going to live together anymore but what about the younglings which made them feel real small um the uh no that that like um uh the the wrong way and and the way you can't you know the the way you can't help uh but deal with it when you're at a certain age is like oh you know in it's like omnipotent defenses they're made for like moments of real of actual helplessness in life for like surviving those psychologically like infancy or senescence or you know um yeah, you know, and so you start, you begin to think, you know, when you, when you think that you control everything, the downside of that is that everything is your fault, you know, and mm. if you're, if you're a kid and that's your kind of like, it's just your normal developmentally appropriate coping mechanism, right? Like mommy and daddy not living any together anymore is like your fault, you know, and, and it's, you know, when you relate to that as like, oh, you know, this reveals that I was always unlovable. You know, this reveals, this is, this is a revelation that like, this was always bad, you know, rather than like, this was a bad thing that happened. Like, and there were, maybe this bad thing had some roots, you know, like maybe, you know, it's not an uncaused effect. Like there, there's some things that we can sort of examine and learn from here, but like, you know, this is a story, right? Like this, this is part of the, this is, this is, uh, um, this is not, uh, the, the sort of the origin and end of the game, uh, as, as Jacques Derrida would say, uh, who, who I've only read, uh, Pete in, not in the original, but, uh, and anthologized, uh, largely in comic books when I was in high school. I would, I would buy <laughs> I did these. Read, I did read Derrida. Yeah. I read a little, not all of the thing because nobody could read the whole thing, but. But yeah, no, the comic books, Derrida and comic books. Yeah, all of these. Uh, no, there were, there were all of these like, you know, Bart for beginners or something like that. Oh. And there were these graphic novel version, not novels. They were these they were these comic versions of uh, of, uh, you know, post-structuralist philosophy. Um, but, you know, thinking uh, right, thinking that that I, I thinking that something is a uh, is a is a peripatia or a or what an anagnorisis or. Or, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, a peripatia, like, yeah. or uh, whether it's, as you say, a vicissitude, right? I think there's more than an academic difference. Uh, I think there's more than an academic difference in that. And that, yeah. that actually, like, sort of, it, it, believe it or not, I think ties into the, the, where we're kind of landing with, with the manifesting stuff where, like, you know, it is one of several possible thought technologies, uh, in order to, you know, address things as they are, uh, you know, address the the capital R reality that's out there. But whatever capital R reality is out there has to be experienced, and the experience is subject to interpretation, to distortion, to all kinds of stuff that happen, um, you know, uh, intra-subjectively. And that's like... Uh, that, the, you know, that's the part where a, a thought technology might be useful, provided it's not misapplied. Um, you know, that, 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 uh, yeah, that, that, that is, is something that could, you know, um, especially when it's, when it's oriented in, in a direction, uh, of what Pete is calling faith that could be sort of useful to you.
Yeah. It definitely makes me think of a lot of these different stories where either they're prequels to stories we already know. So like Obi-Wan, we know that Obi-Wan has to end up on Tatooine with Luke Skywalker for the first Star Wars movie. Uh, like, you know, with with uh, uh, New New Worlds and and uh, Christopher Pike, we kind of know where he's headed, at least in general sense. Right. Although, of course, they could change everything. It's Star Trek and whatnot. But also the kinds of stories we'd encountered more than a few times where there wasn't actually changes in the plot or decisions the characters made that were meaningful, but rather a revelation to the audience that a certain piece of information had been hidden from the audience the whole time that recontextualizes everything that happened previously. Uh, I remember we've talked about stories like that and their uh, bizarre popularity um, in the sort of mystery box way of looking at at storytelling. Can you remember any examples of that off the top of your head? You know what I'm talking about, right? That kind of um, – What's a good example of a story where they all of a sudden, oh, yeah, you know that thing that you thought was happening? It was actually something completely different. Sure. And you're an idiot. There is a um, good – there. there is a the, – the example that I, I – I can't tell whether you're actually driving towards something and I'm I'm letting you down by not uh, completing the bit. Oh, no, no, no. I, not I, completing I the bit. say to finish it up. Um, there's uh, – in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia – uh, you find out a crucial Tom Stoppard's Arcadia is told in two time periods and it jumps back and forth between them. It takes place in one house, uh, with two, two sets of events over a hundred years apart. And, um, they turn out to be related to one another in various ways. And you learn a crucial detail at the end that completely recontextualizes a lot of stuff, uh, that had been mysterious and that had been like, um, uh, you know, really, really perplexing or that you thought was like kind of one way, uh, before it turns out to be a, a completely, uh, a completely different way. Actually, you know, Marlo from the wire is the, <laughs> is really the, the, you know, the, the, what the, um, preeminent figure uh in this sort of thing but that that uh you find out one one piece of information and it's it's sublime it's not cheap i feel like i feel like there's a there's a lot of ways to do it where it's cheap um and and i just i i commend to you tom stoppard's arcadia if you want to uh, i think i was just thinking about westworld i think that was just probably what i was thinking about oh yeah yeah, tom stoppard's arcadia is better than westworld although it has fewer cowboy hats uh, due to not taking place in cowboy times, which is neither does Westworld, I guess. So taking place in cowboy times is not a prerequisite to having cowboy hats. But the, the point being that I think there's real wisdom in the idea that now that you brought it up and I feel convinced there's real wisdom in the idea that finding out a piece of information or, or some body of information that changes the way that you've been thinking about things that happen to you and the way that, and you doing things in your relationships and stuff that happens in your life that that isn't experienced as a retroactive uh, recontextualization. It's experienced as a change, as if everything is, and not all the time, but at least for me, uh, and it sounds like for you too, it can be experienced as a change. Yeah. As things were one way, but now that I have this new information, uh, things things are now changing for me as I come to terms with that information. And, um, and also like, I see those people and it seems like they have changed. And because life is inextricably subjective so much, right? Like the way that I experience them is pretty much as good as I can do a lot of the time in terms of who they quote unquote really are from my perspective. And having a certain humility about that is really important. Um, 
but yeah, this this notion that you know the world changes both because things you don't expect to have happen happen, and also because things you don't know become revealed to you, and that that those are both impetuses for for the experience of change. Um, might partially be one of the real struggles with these stories, right? Because it's like not only does Obi Wan Kenobi need to arrive back at Tatooine, but he needs to kind of achieve some sort of understanding that puts him back in that place. Um, and the understanding, the way that it would be told in a standard, well-made psychological melodrama is that him arriving at that place is a consequence of him arriving at the new understanding. But what I think we're talking about here is that him arriving at the place is the cause of the change, like presumably that, that like that once Obi-Wan Kenobi is back on Tatooine and you know, he's going to stay there, that changes his life. Uh, again, um, and and maybe part of why the show, as we will discuss, is different from that is because it hasn't really con- it hasn't really um, um, these these prequel sorts of stories and kind of putting events in order uh, have to put events the way they are in the order in which they are lived, uh, not necessarily the order in which they are understood um, uh, as much as we might like, unless the whole thing is just like. Obi-Wan Kenobi writing letters from the future, which he's leaving in a bottle and sending away to uh, Robin Wright, who is finding them and kind of journeying to Paul Newman's seafood restaurant. Um, now we're back at, uh, now we're back at, um, oh, I'm now I'm blanking, man. I'm getting so bad. I, I, I worry about my brain so much, Matt. What was, what's the name of the Nicholas Sparks? That's yes. what I was talking the about. Nicholas the Nicholas Sparks, Sparks challenge. The Nicholas Sparks challenge, which is buried in its own uh, traumatic box in the base of my psyche. That would definitely be something in except inception. That would be an old treasure chest that's uh, riding on an elder an Elden ring style stagecoach pulled by giants and surrounded by soldiers. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is something that, that Matt Belenke likes to do is to sign us all up to watch a lot of bad movies. Oh yeah. 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 I like the Hallmark one. The Nicholas Park <laughs> challenge was fun. It was fun to go with Ryan to see that movie in the theater on Valentine's day. That was so bad <laughs> in the middle of the day without our girlfriends or wives. <laughs> So uh, there's no a veterinarian who died in a car crash or something. There's no, stupid. there's no better, <laughs> there's no better illustration of the entire overthinking project than, <laughs> than two bros sitting together in the theater, uh, in the theater on podcast and, uh, you know, you know, getting ready for the podcast. Um, uh, yeah. and it's uh, exactly how we drew it up, right? Exactly how we manifested it the whole time. <laughs> When we were sitting putting this whole thing together, we had an idea that you and I would be right here, right now, talking about this. Uh, it comes. It comes. Everything is progressing according to plan. <laughs> it all has a transpired according to my design. <laughs> yeah, whoopee! When a moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, you're a Jedi. You're a Jedi. Uh, all right, let's leave it there. Thanks, Pete, for talking with me, and thanks everybody for listening to us. We hope we enjoyed this. We hope you enjoyed it as well. But you know, some sometimes we haven't we haven't really done one that's just full on free association for for too long. Like this, this really started with a one word suggestion, like a long form improv sketch. You need uh, to be open to good things happening that you did not expect, or even that are a direct result of bad things. <laughs> yeah. 
there you go. That's yeah. uh, you know. So we did this. We did this to teach everyone a lesson. Uh, all yeah, right, we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll be back with our next lesson next week on the Everything It podcast. Till then, you can visit us on the web uh, at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Yeah, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Do it. Execute. Oh, there are sixty-six. Boss, I got a uh, check sixty-six here in my hand. It's for uh, it's for two calzones, yep. a uh, a coleslaw, and onion rings. But we don't have any onion rings because I can't. <laughs> mar- go get any onion rings. Get the onion rings. Get the onion rings. Cut them up. Cut them up right now. Don't ask questions. <laughs>